You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. So we're going to jump into this, this series on miracles. And why are we doing this and, and what can come from all of this? Well, I want to start with, uh, I'm not going to put this up on the screen, but it's from John chapter 20. The, the disciple John talks about why he wrote his gospel, his book that we call John. It says the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs. This is in, in chapter 20, verse 30. In addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So I want to give you the full context of why we're running into this sermon series and why we want to talk about the miracles. It's not so that you can come up with a checklist of how you can walk on water. I remember growing up thinking, okay, because Jesus did this, but in some time of my lifetime, I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to do some of these things. Uh, this is not necessarily a checklist or a guidebook on how to perform miracles. It's not how to perform miracles or how do they work. It's the fact that Jesus came to this earth and he worked with them. And so I want you to understand that this is about seeing Jesus for who he really is and having our lives encouraged because of what he has done for us. And so I'm going to pick up in John chapter nine. This is the miracle that I'm taking on. We're going to call this message, uh, the message with the mud. Okay. It says in John chapter nine and verse one, it says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind and rabbi, his disciples asked him, why is this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And Jesus says, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus does a few things here in this section as he introduces or John introduces this miracle that we're about to see. Uh, number one is, is he addresses a belief in this culture that even the disciples hold dear, and that is this, that if there is pain in the world, then sin must be right there with it. If there is pain in someone or if there is suffering in someone, then sin must be right there with it. And so they ask him, so who, who's at fault here? Who, who created this big problem? And then Jesus says something that, look, you guys, I've been doing my best this entire time I've been studying for this message. I've been looking through all the different translations. I've been looking through uh, concordances. I've been looking up different words. I've been looking in the Greek. I wanna, I've, I've been wanting this phrase to mean something other than it does when Jesus says, no, this happened so that God's glory could be shown in the middle of this pain. But I've got to tell you that it just means what it says right here in the scripture. Which tells me this, that God can use our pain as a platform or a stage for his glory. Now make no mistake, there is some sin that has created pain in your life that was, it was not God orchestrated and it wasn't necessarily created so that it can have this incredible platform. Look, sometimes there's pain in your life because you've screwed up and that's just how it goes. Sometimes there's pain in my life and it's just simply because I've screwed up. But Jesus specifically talks about this man, this man right here and how he believes that God is going to use his pain and his suffering as an opportunity to display his glory and power. Now, the reason that I know this and believe this to be true is I've experienced it in my own life. 
I came to, to Bend and to Westside about three and a half years ago. Uh, and when I got hired on staff here, it was only a few months um, after Pastor Steve Mickles' son Chase had died. And so I got hired on and I didn't, I don't even think I saw the senior pastor here for like nine months after I had been hired on. And just like I wanted to find a different reason or a different definition for the words that Jesus just used in this scripture, I've been wanting to find a different way to communicate this, but there's no getting around the fact that because of my proximity to our senior pastor, Steve, and watching him walk through the pain in his faith journey, that my faith has been made stronger because of what he has walked through. That's a difficult thing. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around theologically, but all I know is that because I've been around people that have suffered in such a way, I experience faith at a different level because of what they have shown and the example that they have been. I want to encourage you today that maybe you're walking through some pain that God can use as a platform for his glory. That maybe you won't experience all of the peace that other people will feel from it, but God can still use your testimony. He can still use your life and he can still use your pain that you think is simply just a waste. He can use it to create a faith in other people that is beyond measure. It is beyond your understanding, but I want you to know that God can use it. And then Jesus goes into in verse four, like we just read, he actually elevates the conversation, just like we talked about at the beginning of this message. He elevates the conversation to the larger context. Jesus jumps into saying, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Uh, over the course of the pandemic, uh, my son and I have had lots of discussions about screen time. Um, because the great temptation for me as a parent of small children is to put my children in front of iPads and Nintendos all day long so that I can do whatever I want. I can be set free for the first time in how long have we been doing this? Nine months, something like that. But he and I have been having conversations and, and he comes up and he asks me, he said, Dad, can I play Smash Bros on the Nintendo? And I go, here, Joel, here's the deal. You already played a little bit because here's what I want you to know, Joel. I want you to know that I love you and I care for you and I have no interest in raising a son that simply wants to bury his eyes and his mind inside of technology all day. I want you to experience life. I want you to run and get dirty. I want you to know what this life can actually be like. And he's just sitting there and he kind of puts his thumb in his mouth and he goes, so can I play? Yeah, I'm trying to create this larger context. Like, Joel, here's, let me tell you about life and this huge thing. And the disciples come to Jesus and they go, so who sinned? This man or his parents? And then Jesus stops and he goes, look, the night is coming that no one can work, but while I'm here, I'm the light of the world. Okay. What about this guy? And so he goes on, it says in verse six, then Jesus spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And he told them, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and he washed and he came back seeing. And his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said he was and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I'm the one. And they asked, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked the guy who was just blind. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus asked this man to do something that I believe that he asks us often. 
He asks us to endure something that can be awkward or misunderstood at the time. I can't imagine being a blind person and hearing someone spit, wondering what's going to come next. And he makes mud and he puts it on his eyes and he tells the blind man to go somewhere else, to go walk. Of course, we read it by faith and not by sight. And he receives his healing. Now, that's the coolest part, right? The most amazing part. Now, I want to get into the really awkward part. Uh, this is, I'm almost done already. This, I'm just going to read through a large section of scripture. I really want you to keep up with me because I believe that we might see ourselves in this next section of this miracle, okay? So it says in John chapter 9, verse 13, it says, Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed them. Dang it, Jesus never learns when the Sabbath day is. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. And so he told them, he put mud over my eyes. And when I washed it away, I could see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus is not from God for he's working on the Sabbath. And others said, but how could he be, how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. And then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. And the Jewish leader still refused to believe the man had been blind and now could see. And so then they called in his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? And his parents replied, we know this is our son. And that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. And that's why they said he's old enough. Ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man as if they couldn't remember what he said for the first time, who had been born blind. And they told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he said, I don't know if he's a sinner, but I know that I was blind and now I can see. But what did, he, what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love the dig that the man formerly blind sends to the Pharisees at this moment. You guys seem really into this guy. You want to follow him too? Because I need to find him and follow him myself. Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why? That's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. And the final verse, thanks for keeping up with me. I know that was a lot of reading. He says, you were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. When I was, um, when I was in high school, I played football and I had this friend that um, we, we're still good friends, actually. Um, one of like two people that I still talk to from high school. You guys remember like when you were graduating, how you were like going to miss each other and stuff and you don't? I remember that, um, but I still talk with, his name's Brett, Brett Proc, and uh, uh, we met each other when we were like four or five years old, and, um, and I, I grew early, 
I had a mustache in fifth grade and was about 5'10", you know, 160 pounds. And uh, by the time Brett and I got to high school, Brett was the, the son of the football coach and the baseball coach, and uh, he loved the sports just as much as I do, if not more. And it meant a lot to him to wear the uniform and be on varsity and all this kind of stuff. But when we reached high school, Brett was super short, Brett was super chubby, and Brett was super slow. And so it made us great friends because I always knew where I stood, <laughs> literally and figuratively. And then something happened in the summer before our junior year. Brett grew up. Brett got a six-pack. Brett got fast. And all of a sudden, Brett was maybe the best player on our football team. And I'm on this team. I wanted to win. I wanted to see us win whatever tournament or league or whatever we were associated with. And all of a sudden, we got this brand new player who can really, really, really play. And I was mad about it. Because all of a sudden, his growth took him out of the context that I was comfortable with him in. We had created a relationship where I was comfortable with him being chubby and slow and a lineman. And I was less comfortable with him having a six-pack, being fast, and scoring all the touchdowns. Why? Because I felt like his growth moved me back a few pegs. It took the spotlight off of me. It even brought us to the point in a practice one time where we fought we threw punches. I won, but we fought. And I look back on that now and I think about this in the context of what the Pharisees are doing. They've witnessed this man who they have walked by. They know that he is blind. They know that they've seen him out there before. And now this incredible miracle happens to him. And because they can't possibly comprehend it, they don't understand how it exactly works. They don't know where it comes from. They resist the miracle that Jesus would bring into their life because they cannot possibly view God in the way that this man has actually experienced God. Here's the thing that I want you to understand and get from this. I believe that we in the church, and I know that myself as an individual, and I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you figure it out for yourself in your own life. I believe that we're comfortable with people a lot of times when they're silenced. I believe that we're comfortable when we can create a structure where we are greater than them. I believe that we enjoy ourselves when we have our position that is above other people in our surroundings. And all of a sudden, when the voiceless have a voice, when all of a sudden the silent begin to speak out, when all of a sudden that people that haven't been able to say anything or been able to declare the glory of God or share a miracle or share their pain, all of a sudden they begin to speak into our context. We resist because it has never been in our periphery before. It hasn't existed in our churches and in our lives. We're not used to the language. We're not used to the pain. We're not used to the joy or the suffering because we've never allowed it into our lives before. And we throw the people out who need and who have seen Jesus in a way that we have never before because we're scared and we don't understand it. I'm gonna invite the band back up and we're gonna take communion. Here's the reason that I wanna bring this up and I really want you to get this. Just like idiot Ben in stupid high school football. Sorry if my kids are listening, stupid's a bad word in our, in our house. I don't know why something exists when, within us that when the whole is improved, 
we spend more time interested in holding on to our own prestige and our own position. I saw a, um, I saw a tweet. <laughs> Is there a more millennial preacher thing to say? Uh, I saw a tweet uh, and I can't remember exactly who said it. I wasn't expecting to say this, but. He said, you know, something like this. He said, you know, you've lived in privilege when equality feels like oppression. You guys, God wants to do something in the kingdom. He wants to do something in our church where he wants to, I, th I believe that he has been. I believe that he wants us to see the breadth and the depth of his love in a way that we have never experienced it before. And it's necessary in this time that we live in right now to do something that, that Jesus addressed when this lawyer comes to him. And he says, so what are the commandments? And Jesus says, one of these things, he says, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer responds, looking for a way out. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus, of course, goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Until we know how to answer this question, or even more than that, until we're aware of how we are currently answering the question of who is my neighbor, we will throw out people from our lives who need to experience, who want to experience or have experienced Jesus in a real way. We will continue to be uncomfortable until we understand how we answer the question, who is my neighbor? So who's your neighbor? Is it only people that just look exactly like you, that talk just like you, that grew up with you? Is your neighbor people that you don't understand, people that you've never listened to before? Is your neighbor the people that you feel like don't always smell quite right or don't always say the right thing, that grew up on the wrong side of the tracks from your right side of the tracks? Who is your neighbor? And now here's the thing, I believe that you've got an answer. So right now, before we head into a time of communion, I want you to just close your eyes with me. And I want you to consider who you have thought about and who you have cared for since this shutdown and this pandemic hit, since crisis hit. Who have you considered and who have you thought about, who have you loved and who have you cared for? Because I got to tell you that in the time of crisis that we're experiencing right now, who you have reached out and who you've cared for, that is who you consider as your neighbor. You've got your answer. That's who it is. Now I want to ask you, does that reflect who Jesus is compelling us to have in our neighborhood? Father God, I know we have neighbors. I know we have people that we're caring for, but Lord Jesus, I just want us right now. I want us to, to have it renewed within our hearts again, to have our neighbors look like who you would have 
as your neighbor. Lord, I think about in the middle of this process, the people that you found yourself near to so often were a ragtag group of disciples that were largely outcasts, or since they started starting, they started following you, they became outcasts. Or prostitutes came and they anointed your feet. You lived homeless. You cared for people that were thrown out of the synagogue and you died, Jesus, at the hands of a people that you loved and cared for more than anything. Lord, we want our neighbors to look like yours. We want our neighborhood to look like yours, Jesus. Help us do it in Jesus' name. Right now we're gonna prepare for communion and we're gonna let the band play and we're just gonna worship out of this moment. I want you to continue to consider that and who is my neighbor. And in just a minute, we'll take the elements together. There was a moment when the lights went out when death has claimed its victory The king of love had given up his life The darkest day in history There on a cross made for sinners For every curse his blood atoned One final breath and it was finished But not the end we could have known For the earth began to shake And the veil was torn What the sacrifice was made As the heavens rose
Amen. We're going to take communion together. I don't want these messages to sound like we're just you know, trying to be hard on people. I'm trying to be hard on myself. But you guys, the biggest thing that I want us to understand is I, I want to be there. I want to celebrate the miracles and the opportunity that God is creating in our culture even now. I want to be there to help the oppressed and those who have been silenced in their lives. I don't want to be on the side of history that is ignorant and continues to walk past on the other side of the road while someone bleeds on this side. Let's stay engaged together. Let's not grow weary in doing good. Let's take communion together. I've got a Altoid and, uh, and an Americano, okay? Um, it's gonna be a sweet minty. Okay, let's go. Father God, this is representative of your body that was broken for us. Let us not ignore in these times the incredible sacrifice that you made so that we might have eternal life in your name. Lord, let us not in these times be in awe of the miracles that you perform, but be in awe of you, the one who came and decided to perform them for us, who decided to bring salvation to our house. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. In Jesus' name, you can take the body. Jesus, this is your blood that was shed for us, or we believe that it poured over our souls and our sin and it washed us white as snow, not due to our willpower, not due to our upbringing, but instead Jesus due to the incredible sacrifice that you made on the cross those thousands of years ago, Jesus. We embrace it again, fresh and new in your name, we pray, amen. Come on, let's sing that again together just once or twice more. Let's get in our soul and spirit, then we'll close together. Jesus. And um, I just want to remind you guys too, if you're not in a home group, those are up and running. And that's just going to be like kind of our primary...